Welcome back to the 83rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, talking about big consulting and their push for ESG, prioritizing climate change in the military, and then a follow-up story about Trank or Trank Dope the new mixture of drugs that is sweeping across the nation and is extremely dangerous. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So I'm going to come out and say it right away. Is ESG a scam? I mean, they're... There's, of course, value to caring about how companies affect a society, but that can be measured through economic contribution and things of the like. Do we see any value? Do you see any value in ESG? Or do you think it's just another metric by which a company can be controlled by Wall Street or the government? Or is there another perspective I'm not considering here? Obviously, I gave you pretty two pretty strict options, and you can probably tell my bias on the issue. I want to hear your opinion. Throw it down in the comments section, and like I said, highlight the things that I don't quite understand about it, if you think there are any. All right, our first article comes from The American Prospect, Big Consulting's New Con. And yes, I know another big industry or big insert industry here story. I've been talking about them a lot, and I do think that someone pointed out to me where I had a conversation the other day that using the term big anything, it really does inspire fear. It creates this feeling of the other, that they're out to get you or they're against you. Oh, big pharma. Oh, big con. So on and so forth. But I do think that it is, well, it does elicit these emotions, and it is used as a way to kind of separate them, say that, oh, their interests are not for the average person. They are a big industry with their own objectives, which is true of every industry. And I understand that that can be a little bit fear-inspiring. I do think that the term is useful when we're talking about three major consulting companies or four major accounting firms, like we'll discuss here, that have an outsized control or influence over governments and other private sector companies. So I do think the term, while it can be a little bit much sometimes, is useful in order to just lump them all together and make sure that people know what you're talking about when you say, oh, we're talking about the consulting industry, but not the, not the small guys. We're talking about big con, the big ones who have a lot of outsized control. I think it's a useful term. So we're going to keep using it, but I do acknowledge that that term comes with a little bit of weight that is not necessarily positive and can possibly skew your bias. So just keep that in mind when you hear it. But there, this is really, yet again, another example of government and private enterprise working together, but not necessarily for everybody's benefit. Quote, Big Consulting's efforts to profit from the climate crisis and other pieces of stakeholder capitalism movement represent the latest version of a capture and extract playbook that the industry has been developing for decades. The rhetoric of, quote, environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, may sound novel, and the intentions behind it may sometimes be genuine, but the consequences are predictable and dangerous. 
Governments and businesses become increasingly dependent on the services of consenting of consultants, while public policy solutions become narrowly limited to those that are actually profitable for the consulting industry and its corporate clients, end quote. So if we're going to play devil's advocate here, there is, of course, value to consulting. At the end of the day, you go to these firms who have more expertise, who have the time to actually spend really deep diving on these issues. And then it doesn't take the time of the government agents, the bureaucrats. They can focus on more important things while these consultants do studies while they, like I said, take a deep dive and really break down the issue and make sure that all sides are seen and that there's a very well put together document towards the end that they can give to these government agents and say, if you were to go with this policy, the, it would have these certain effects, so on and so forth. So there is value there. And it is the free market working. There are enterprises that, oh, we can specialize in this one particular type of tax consulting, and we can see the effects that certain tax changes would have in the future. Now the government doesn't have to do that in-house. So, of course, there are benefits. But there is also an argument to be made that it just passes the buck, that you shouldn't be allowing these private enterprises who may actually benefit from these policy changes or implementation of new regulations, maybe, that they shouldn't be the ones providing advice on how to craft them, and that the government should do this in-house because they have the ability to get access that some private companies may not be able to. And then also the government can say, oh, well, uh, well, we got our data from this consulting company. You can't blame us because the law doesn't work as intended or this policy doesn't have the exact effect. We were just going off the information we were given. It allows them to pass off the responsibility rather than say, oh, no, we made a bad policy decision and we may make one in the future if we get data that suggests we should do something, even though we know in the past that that data has not always reaped the best results for our constituents. So it's just a consideration. And I, I want to go to another quote here that kind of kind of highlights it a little bit. Quote, the big con focus on the handful of the world's most powerful consulting firms, including the big three, McKinsey, Bion & Co., and Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, as well as the big four accounting firms, PwC, Deloitte, EY, and KPMG, which now rely on consulting, not auditing, for a growing share of their business. These sprawling organizations are some of the largest private companies in the United States, with offices around the world, annual revenues in the tens of billions of dollars, and clients in seemingly, seemingly every big corporation and national government. Big consulting's practices are influential, lucrative, and for the vast majority of the public not employed in government or consulting, often invisible, end quote. So consulting across multiple countries, that's the real thing that I picked out here, and that's something that speaks to me. Multiple countries, multiple demographics, is that not dangerous? Also the fact that they have people, contacts, that are coming to them in private companies across nations, especially in the United States, is that not dangerous? Having that many people come to you for your consulting expertise, and then maybe you could, in theory, shift the perspective on a certain issue. If all of these people are coming and asking you about 
what should we do about cutting our emissions? How should we go about this? If you have a consultant there who is really in favor of solar power or wind power rather than hydropower because they maybe have stocks in it or maybe just because they like the technology more, they could skew the data. They could make sure they don't ask certain questions when trying to attain this data and therefore they could shift, they could have a secret agenda and shift the direction in which all these private companies and countries move. And that's extremely dangerous. When you have so many people relying on you, you have an outsized amount of control and power. Now, of course, I'm not saying that the company does this. I'm not saying they have a giant secret agenda where they're in their board meetings. Oh, yes, today we are going to manipulate Bitcoin. We're not going to allow it to succeed. I'm not saying that's happening behind the scenes. And I'm not saying that employees are unethical and that they would do that in that they would propose a certain policy that would benefit them. But it is possible. That's an outsized amount of power. And with that much power comes the need to truly understand the weight of your position and take it very seriously. I kind of want to avoid the word being responsible because it kind of is a cliche at this point because of Spider-Man in the movies. What, we've had seven of them at this point? But it is true. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with that outsized control. And I think it's something that needs to be considered when having a conversation about Big Con. And very often they're not actually held to account because they are behind the scenes. Sometimes the government just takes the blame for these bad policy recommendations or consulting recommendations because at the end of the day, they did get the information. Now, they could pass the buck like I was talking about earlier. They could blame it on the consulting firms, but that doesn't always happen. And like I said, they're behind the scenes. As the quote says, they're often invisible. So they don't necessarily have to be held liable all the time for some of their bad consulting decisions. So that's another aspect that, you know, it makes them less responsible for their actions, which I think is a little bit dangerous. If you can't tell what the theme of this section is, it's dangerous. But they're not really an evil, they're not all an evil cabal pushing their own agenda for power. So why do they do it? If they're not trying to gain more power, and I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here, if they're not all trying to gain power, what is it about? And I'm pretty sure you know what it is, but we're going to read a quote from the article. Quote, there's clearly profits to be found in what the Financial Times calls a booming market for environmental, social, and governance advice. End quote. Oh, no, really. I have not seen many consulting firms and many venture capital firms pushing into ESG efforts. No, I would never believe that. You're saying there's lots of money in ESG? Uh, what? No. All right, let's jump back to the... Quote here, Mascato and Cullington point to a forecast predicting that the global market for a climate change consultant could exceed $8.5 billion by the end of 2028. The figure includes everything from serving as official consultancy partner of the United Nations Climate Convention, BCG, to selling measurements and frameworks for companies to track their carbon emissions and climate risk. KPMG, Deloitte, EY, and PwC, to publishing articles about why the biodiversity crisis is a business crisis, BCG, and how companies can make the metaverse an enabler of sustainability, EY, to developing a scientifically implausible net zero plan for the Australian government that relies on part of 
unnamed future technology breakthroughs, McKenzie, end quote. And does this not, when you hear all of these things being rattled off and the fact that they're taking advantage of this new market, does, for me, and I want to know if it makes you question, for me, it really makes me step back and say, well, it feels like this could be a manufactured issue or crisis. They could create their own process, uh, issues, crises, and say, oh, these are going to be major issues in 10 years, and here's our solutions to fix them. We already have addressed the fact that this is going to be a problem, but you know what? Because we're good consultants, we're going to provide you with the answers, how to fix it, what policies to enable, so on and so forth. And why would they do that, you ask? Because they can make money from it. If they can produce new issues, new crises that they have the solution for, then they can make money for it. And I know, I just said a minute ago, they're not a giant cabal. I'm not saying they are doing this. I'm saying you, in theory, have the ability to do this. If you want to point out something that a company is doing that may be harmful to them, and then you also provide the solution, you can make money off of that. And sometimes it's good. It doesn't have to necessarily be bad. It doesn't necessarily have to be that they're standing there saying, oh, yes, we're going to make a concerted effort across the entire market to push these new issues and make money off of it. But it could be just the way that the company operates. Oh, we've seen this issue before in other com companies. And while it may not necessarily apply to a company your size, we do have a solution for it in case you want to take it on ahead of time. So it's basically issue creation, even if it's not necessarily going to be an issue for that company. And that's a possibility. I'm not saying they're doing it. I'm not saying that they would do it because that's a little bit immoral in my opinion. But it's a possibility. And that's what this whole article, this whole article is trying to frame it as they are doing this. They're evil. They have the ability to do it. And I'm trying to take a step back, step back and say, yes, they have the ability to do all of these things. I'm not accusing them of doing it. They just have to be very responsible going forward. And you, as a citizen, as a person who operates in a world where these consulting groups have a lot of power, need to be fully aware of what's going on so that you can push back against it if you don't like it. You can understand what's happening if for some reason you are working with these consulting firms in the future and you understand what their process is like. It's just more knowledge to be fully equipped for anything that comes up during the average day as a business person or just a citizen. If this issue comes up and there are a whole bunch of bills about it, at least you'll be a little bit more informed and you may have an opinion and you may be able to vote based on some of the things that you learn here. That's the whole goal of this article. All right, let's jump to our second article. This one comes from The Daily Wire. Army Secretary dragged for prioritizing resiliency in the face of climate change. So speaking about a push for ESG policy, it has reached beyond the private and public companies and the public sphere at this point, and it really has now filtered into the military. Quote, the United States Army Secretary Christine E. Wortham took some heat on Twitter when she boasted on Thursday that the Army was prioritizing a plan to combat climate change. Wortham revealed that Fort Bragg, North Carolina, was home to the largest floating solar array, solar panels that float on the surface of a body of water while tethered to the bottom in the southeastern United States. 
and she argued that this was proof of the military's leadership when it came to climate change, end quote. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we are diversifying our energy production. We do not want to be reliant on just wind energy, just solar energy, just fossil fuels. If something were to happen and there was to be an infrastructure attack against our oil companies or our oil supply chain, then it would be good to have other forms of energy production at these military bases so they could act in a way completely off the grid from anybody else, not reliant on these gas, oil, or any other type of energy production, coal energy production, and they could operate due to this solar array. I think it's a good thing that we're diversifying, and I think that it actually strengthens our ability to respond in certain situations. But then the question should be, the article's framing it this way. It's not actually, the article's not going around saying, oh, yes, this is absolutely evil. It's just reporting saying, this, these are the facts. People were heated on Twitter about these comments. And I think the question that this leads to is, should this be a priority for the military? While I said it is useful that we are diversifying, and it is an important thing to ensure that if anything was to happen to any different supply chain, we have a whole bunch of different technology that enables us to still do our jobs or their jobs as the military. That's great. But should this be a priority? And the a lot of these respondents are kind of going out and they're looking at her tweet and saying she is directly endorsing this behavior. She's saying that we have to buckle down. We have to ensure that the U.S. military is a leader on climate change. That is what her tweet says. But does that mean, when she says that, that we should have more technology that is better than what we have now and still keep the old stuff? Or should we get rid of the old stuff and just have more new green technology? And I think a lot of people are taking it the second way. I take it the first way. Maybe it's because I want to give her the benefit of the doubt, and I don't want to believe at the end of the day, that the military is pushing really heavily just to have climate change as a serious issue that they're facing. But I take it as we're expanding our capabilities and also we're addressing climate change by allowing these different locations to have different energy sources that are not fossil fuels. But like I said, maybe that's just me giving her and the military the benefit of the doubt. But once again, we return to this question, should it be a priority? If it is the case that they want to push for only new green technology and they want to get rid of fossil fuels altogether, I think that is absolutely idiotic. And the reason I think so is exactly what I said at the beginning, which is we need a diversified pool of technology, of energy production. So just in case it's a rainy day and the solar array can't produce as much energy, we don't have a large enough lithium batteries to store the energy for more than a day for that place to operate without the solar array. And for some reason, there's an infrastructure attack on the fossil fuel energy sector. Then what are they going to do? They're going to be stranded. So I think at the end of the day, it depends on the way that you take this. And I think that we should have backups. We should have alternatives, but we should not have it be the only focus to be a green military, so to speak. And, you know, many commentators, they agree with what I said or outright just say no. They don't want us to focus as heavily on these green technologies, and they share their opinions on Twitter. Quote, this is completely and totally asinine, bordering on dangerous, Army Ranger veteran 
Sean Pernell tweeted in response. Quote, just not much more to say about it. If you can't see why this is dangerous, I can't help you. Another person said, quote, how about learning how to win wars again? How about we train generals to do that at college, war college, and stop forcing male soldiers to march in high heels, giving the soldiers ha- hazardous mRNA vac- injection- injections, and teaching them to use the correct pronouns. How about that, huh? Daddy Warpig wanted to know. That's a funny, that is a really funny Twitter handle, uh, at Daddy Warpig, goodness gracious. But, you know, they really, they have a point. If the military wants to force the different areas and forts to focus on these sort of projects rather than being prepared for any sort of military interaction, deployment, so on and so forth, then I do think that is an issue. If it is a priority where it over, or sorry, supersedes any other part of the military's job, that is an issue. If it is something done in tandem with its other operations, it's, I think it's a good thing. And that's, I think there's a bit of a divide here. There's a political divide. Oh, no, no, it's just outright, we shouldn't be focusing on this at all. And I think at the end of the day, like I said, diversifying is important. Caring about the environment is important. And we can do multiple things at the same time. Now, if it starts taking away from those other operations, the training process, if they're using the soldiers' hours to build these solar arrays rather than train them on firearms or different tactical maneuvers, so on and so forth, I do think that that is a waste of time and is a waste of resources and energy. But if we can do it in tandem, great, let's go for it. But there are more people on Twitter who totally disagree with where I'm coming from. Quote, I know I'm just a dumb retired senior enlisted guy, but I can think of 15,000 more important priorities for the Secretary of the Army than climate resilience, retired Navy SEAL Derek Van Orden commented. Retired Marine Gunnery Sergeant Jesse Jane Duff reacted as well, tweeting, quote, China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea are watching as the Secretary of the Army brags about her priority is fighting climate change. At Sec Army, your absurd focus is why the U.S. military was rated as weak relative to the force needed to defend national interests, end quote. And I think that they are not really, I think the Daily Wire here is just taking a lot of the comments, a lot of the thought processes of other people, putting them out there and reporting on it. And I like that. They're not really injecting their opinion. But you can still tell where they're coming from because of the tweets that they chose. So I think that this sort of reporting on this issue is good. It's non-biased. It, or at least, I take that back, because it is biased, is bi- biased by the way that they take the certain tweets. There are probably tweets praising this, and they chose not to put them in this article. So, of course, they're going to highlight the ones that they think are important, but they're not injecting their own opinion. And I think that is very important here. And if you want to go read this original article for yourself, rather than hearing it filtered through my bias then go ahead. And I think that would be really important for this one. All right, so let's jump to our last article. This one comes from FEE Stories, or Fee Stories. Why the zombie drug spreading across the U.S. should remain off the Schedule 1 list. So as I mentioned at the top, this is a follow-up story from about a month ago. Trank Dope is spreading rapidly across the country. And as we talked about in the previous story, 
it highlighted how this is affecting the Philadelphia area, how when people mix this xylazine with other drugs, fentanyl mainly, and they inject it, it can cause skin rotting. They, like I said, they add it to opioids. It can cause them to pass out and be resistant to the normal uh, resuscitation methods for fentanyl overdoses. So it can be a very, very scary thing. But there is now a debate really swirling now that it's really getting national attention on how to address the problem. Quote, Trank, better known as to veterinarians as xylazine, an animal sedative, has been making its way into batches of illicit opioids in cities across the country, coast to coast. Xylazine is currently not a scheduled narcotic, but there will be calls from public health officials, law enforcement, and the public to criminalize the use, possession, and sale of the substance. An early example is the proposed bill SB2089 in Illinois, which amends the State Controlled Substance Act to recognize the additive as a Schedule One controlled substance. Quote, no currently, not currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse, end quote. The horrific images of carnage created by the drug are enough to provoke calls to have it criminalized. But such outcry for reactionary measures to reduce the presence of Trank on the black market is misguided. Not only will expanding the scope of our failed five-decade war on drugs end up only harming society, there are many other reasons why the sale and use of xylazine should not be prohibited, end quote. And from this quote, we can really gleam a really good question that we should be asked or should be asking, which is we've tried to take this approach before and it didn't work. So what's going to be different this time? What is going to change? Just because we put a drug on the Schedule 1 list doesn't mean that it is going to get off the streets. If anything, it means that people may start to synthesize it. They may start to say, okay, well, there's a market here. And the real stuff, that's illegal. But maybe we can create something in our street lab that has similar effects. And then that can be extremely dangerous. But before we jump into that, because I do have a quote highlighting that, I want to talk about the drug war as a whole. Quote, the budget for the National Drug Control Program agencies in fiscal year 2023 is a staggering $42.5 billion. It is estimated that trillions of dollars have been squandered on the war on drugs in total. What have we gotten with this exorbitant multi-decade expenditure? It has done little to stifle the progress of drug cartels. The illicit drug trade remains immensely profitable, yielding an estimated annual revenue of between $426 billion and $652 billion. End quote. And as one substance has been made illegal or put on the Schedule 1 list, another has really come to take its place. I mean, if you think about opioids, once they became overabused and people were really cracking down on it, then the market turned to heroin. When heroin was acknowledged to, uh, to be a huge issue, you had fentanyl and methamphetamine come out from there. So often more addictive and more potent drugs come along after the government decides to crack down on the usage of these other 
products. And this is because, one, people don't want to be arrested for their use of heroin, so they go to something that's not necessarily as talked about, regulated, as harmful, or, sorry, perceived to be harmful by the society. Or there's also the fact that, well, now that it's illegal to sell these things and they're going to crack down harder on it, we can synthesize new drugs that have similar effects, and they may even be more addictive, and they'll be cheaper to produce at the end of the day because we can synthesize them in a lab rather than having to grow certain poppies and then refine the opium from them and so on and so forth. So we've seen this progression over time that the drug war is just increasing the amount of drugs that are out there and increasing their potency and addictiveness, which is more likely to lead to overdoses. So you can see the angle that this author and this article are really taking here, how this actually may not be as good of a move to put it on the Schedule 1 list as possible. And, you know, like I said, it's always because there's another person out there willing to synthesize it. There's another person willing to create a new drug that they can make more money for and sell to even more people without them having to worry about repercussions from law enforcement. Quote, consumer demand drives all markets, including those for illegal products. Enterprising chemists synthesize novel substances to exploit loopholes in drug laws. A decade ago, the media reported on the dangers of bath salts, synthetic cathedine, or synthetic cannabinoids, K2. If marijuana and cocaine were never outlawed, neither compound would exist, end quote. And I want to highlight the author does go on, and the article does go on to talk about how we need to ensure that there are safe usage locations, that they have medical staff there on these premises to ensure that these wounds, these rotting skin wounds that come from the use of trank dope are treated properly, that if anything happens overdose-wise that they can be resuscitated. And also, if we don't criminalize it, the author argues, then people are less likely to feel terrible and like they are going to get criminally prosecuted if they go into recovery locations and they talk about their issues, they admit that they were using it, and they would be more willing to go and get off of these drugs and go to these rehab centers. And I think there is an argument there. I think at the end of the day, the real argument that we need to ask is, are we willing to let people do this to themselves? That is, that is really a key issue here. Then it really does underpin what the author's going about because he's not saying that we should stop the usage of these drugs. He's not saying that it is morally wrong, so we have to stop the usage of these drugs. We should just deal with the after effects of the usage of these drugs, meaning he's taking a very libertarian stance that you should be allowed to do whatever you want with your body, and you should have the resources to make a better decision as well. Not forcing you to make that decision, but at least the resources are there. And I, I agree. Even though I don't love seeing these photos of these people who are in pain, who've had to have amputations, even though I don't like the idea of allowing a drug so dangerous to be out there on the streets, I also do think that people should have the ability to make terrible choices and I hope that they come out the other side of making those terrible choices a better person. Maybe this experience that they would have doing these drugs would actually make them value their life more because they may come close to the edge of death. And they've come out of this with a different worldview and realize their life is valuable. 
and that they have certain tendencies and traits that they have to keep under control. There's value to be learned from experiences like this. And that's what I hope people do. I hope if they do do these drugs and they go down this path that is not the best for them, at least they can come out the other side with a little bit more wisdom and they're not stuck in that hole forever. But they should be free to make that decision if they so choose, at least in my opinion. All right. I know it was a little bit sad, so let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from News 18. Dog risks its own life to save a drowning cat, making internet emotional. So it's always amazing to see a hero help somebody, whether it's uh, a girl who falls on the tracks, a baby who falls on the tracks, and someone jumps down and grabs them very quickly. It's always nice to see a hero help someone in need. But it also really pulls at the heartstrings when that hero is a dog. Quote, a dog dives in to save his scared cat friend who has fallen into the water. The video shows a cat half drowning in the water, holding onto an object with all his strength. And as the dog approaches, the cat kind of switches tactics a little bit. He's like, oh, here's my friend. Quote, the cat climbs on the canine's back and jumps out of the water. The dog makes it its way out, and the video ends with the rescue mission turning out to be a successful one. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos of this interaction, or you want to read any of today's articles, especially that middle one, like I was talking about, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the links to the podcast on Spotify, Podvine, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, and the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a link directly to the YouTube video every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 8.30. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.